All right, well, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, junior hires, high schoolers, you're dismissed. 1 Samuel chapter 16, as we continue in our study through this book, 1 Samuel, as you're making your way there, as the story goes, a man died and was on his way up to heaven, and uh, Satan uh, intercepted him. And said, uh, "Hey, listen, buddy, not so fast. Let, 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 let me okay, okay, let, let me show you. Let me show you hell. Let me show you what you're missing, man. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that if you took a good look and <clears throat> see everything that I've got to offer, that you will not, you know, want to go up to heaven, but you'd rather stay here." The guy's like, "I doubt it, but okay, uh, let's take the tour." So they, you know, go down, and the elevator doors open, and instantaneously, uh, we are talking, you know. Yachts and mansions and caviar and you know crabs legs and crab legs and the, and lobster and the champagne and the you know beautiful women everywhere and all the just stuff and they're treating this guy like a rock star a movie star everybody's calling his name Joe Joe how you doing buddy and he's <clears throat> overwhelmed just everything he ever imagined and uh, so <clears throat> at the end of the day. <clears throat> next day, he's, you know, he's leaving. It's like, okay, Satan walks him to the elevator. This is not theologically correct, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Satan walks him to the elevator. He's like, uh, hey, man, so keep us in mind as you're making that final decision, buddy. He's like, man, I, I certainly will. So on the way up in the elevator, Joe makes up his mind, man. The doors open up. God's there in, in heaven. He doesn't even step out of the elevator. He's like, you know what? Save your sales pitch, man. I made up my mind. I, I, I choose hell. God's like, all right, you sure? He's like, yeah, I, that's, that's why I choose. He's like, all right, Joe, go ahead. So the doors close, the elevator goes down, the doors open up, and we're talking fire and brimstone and agony and people just dying, you know, and there's Satan to greet him. He's like, what, 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 hey, what, what happened? Where, where's the yacht, man? Where's the, where's the babes and the cars and the, he's like, oh, yeah, that was yesterday. Yesterday we were campaigning. Today you voted, Right? And last week, what we saw was that Saul was on the campaign trail, and he was kissing babies and shaking hands and the whole bit. He's perpetuating an image. But what Saul found out the hard way is that God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so because Saul's heart was far from the Lord, God chose David to replace Saul as king. And it was surprising because David was a very unlikely candidate for that. Nobody would have ever guessed that David was the guy that God was going to choose as, as the man after his own heart and as the replacement for, uh, for Saul. Nobody would have, ch- would have chosen that, ch- would have imagined that. You know, for starters, you know, David was a dependent. He was a child. He was, a lot of historians think he was a teenager at this time. Didn't, <clears throat> doesn't really seem to fit uh, the category. He was despised by his brothers. He was, he was disregarded by his father. He was the runt of the litter. I mean, his dad saw, thought so little of him that when Samuel comes to anoint him and tells, tells you know, his father Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the future king, he doesn't even think to call David in. He, he parades seven of his sons by, and, and then when Samuel's like, eh, it's none of those, he's like, eh, I don't know what to do. It was Samuel who's like, well, don't you have any other sons? He's like, well, yeah, I get the run to the litter, the, the, you know, David stinking up the field with his sheep out there. He's like, well, bring him in. And so, you know, his dad didn't even think that much about him. And so David seemed destined to mediocrity, but thankfully what we learned last week is that the basis of God's choice doesn't depend on any of these things. 
And what we saw last week was that God's choice is contrary to human reason and that it's conditioned upon the heart of obedience, a heart that responds to God's calling. And so because God called David and because David responded obediently to to this calling upon him, obediently to the Lord, then his calling was then characterized by heavenly recognition. And that recognition that we saw was the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. God caused Samuel to anoint David with a flask of oil, symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that God confirmed this calling by pouring his Holy Spirit out upon David. But we continue now, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now we're going we're gonna to spend quite some time here on this one verse uh, camping out here and seeing this thing because there's a lot to learn here in this text. And what we see here is that yes, God poured his Holy Spirit out upon David, but what we see is that God now takes his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And it's not, you know, don't, don't misunderstand. It's not like, you know, there's some shortage of this commodity of God's Holy Spirit. That like, if he's going to pour out his Spirit upon David, that he first has to take it away from Saul. It's not about that at all. Really, what's happening here is that God is giving to Saul what he wanted. He's just getting, basically, what he asked for. You see, because what happened is Saul started out humble. When God called him, he started out as, 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 a, as a humble man of sorts. But over time, what happened was as he grew as a king, as he grew as a general, as he grew as a leader, well, then he began to get puffed up with pride and he's arrogant and he's hardening his heart. And now he's not being obedient to God. He's rather turned a decidedly different direction. And now he's walking contrary to God. He's behaving as if he is his own God. And, and so the Holy Spirit would speak to Saul's heart. The Holy Spirit would say to him repeatedly, repent, turn back. Uh, don't, don't harden your heart. Soften your heart. But David wouldn't, or uh, Saul wouldn't listen. Saul became increasingly prideful and increasingly resistant to God. And it was the worst kind of pride in which he thought within his mind, I'm following the Lord, I'm serving the Lord, I'm doing what God calls me to do. But he not, he was doing what he wanted to do. And so finally, God gets to the point where he's like, you know what, fine. You want, you want to go your own way? You want to harden your heart? I'm, you know what, I'm going to take my Holy Spirit away from you. And he gave him what he wanted. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. That is a truly frightening thing, that you can say no to God so repeatedly that eventually He'll give you what you want, and He will take away His Holy Spirit. Now, at this point, it's important. Let me differentiate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me differentiate between those who are in Christ and those who have really not surrendered their life to Christ because uh, there's an important differentiation to make. It's important to understand right here with Saul that he's operating under the Old Covenant in the, in the Old Testament. See, under the Old Covenant, what we see there is that God pours His Holy Spirit out, but that He also can take Him away. He can take the Holy Spirit away. And we see this happening in the Old Testament. We see it happening here in our text. He poured his Holy Spirit out upon Saul, and now he's taken his Holy Spirit away from Saul. And what you need to understand is that today we live under the, we live under the New Testament, under the New Covenant. 
And, and under the new covenant, this is the covenant that Jesus Christ instituted at the Last Supper when he broke the bread and when he distributed the cup and, and had the disciples partake of the bread and the cup. And the, the symbol of his body broken for them, the cup being the symbol of his blood shed on the cross for the remission of sins. And Jesus said this to them in Mark's gospel. It says, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. You see, here's the new covenant. Under the old covenant, God would reveal himself and would say, you know, to to the nations, hey, listen, here's who I am and here's my standard and he gives his law and, 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 and all. And the idea is that, hey, listen, keep my covenant, keep my law, and, and make these sacrifices to atone for your sin and, and, and all. And, and this is the old covenantal agreement. Now, the new covenant is a completely different agreement. This is where, the, well, the Bible says that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so for, for you, for me, for the Pope, for, you know, Mother Teresa, for everybody else, you know, under the sun, there, there is the, the very stark realization that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that what we've earned because of our sin is death. And, and, and that's the bad news. But the good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the gospel is good news. The gospel says, yeah, you're a blow it. Yeah, you've earned death. That's what you're deserving of. But God loves you so much, he gave his son to die on the cross for your sin in your place. That he rose again on the third day conquering sin and death. And that you can conquer your penalty of sin and death by trusting in Jesus Christ. By making a profession of faith that that says, I believe that you are the Christ, that you're the son of the living God, that you died on the cross for my sin in my place. And I'm not going to trust in my own works. I'm not going to trust in my own righteousness. I'm not going to trust in anything else, but I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, the old covenant said basically, look, here's God's standard. Keep it. And if you don't keep it, then these are the sacrifices that you need to make to atone for that sin. And the whole purpose of the old covenant was to show you your need for Jesus Christ. It's not like Jesus Christ was plan B. It's not like God said, oh, you know, here's the way to get to me. And then he's like, well, that's not working out so good. What am I going to, well, I'll send Jesus. The whole idea, the Bible says that, that the law was our tutor. And it was to point us to Christ. Uh, Paul talks about that in the book, of, uh, in his letter to the Colossians. And so, so the, the idea is that Jesus, or the Lord, Father gave us his law, gave us his standard. And what he wanted us to see is, I can't keep the standard. And I need a savior. I need somebody to help me. And God would say, yes, that's the whole point of the old covenant. To point forward to the, to the coming Messiah and your, your desperate need for him. And so we live under a new covenant that we have salvation by grace through faith. And in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit is a permanent possession. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel. He says that I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Who is this other helper? He goes on, the spirit of truth 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit that's going to be poured out. Now, Jesus uses two very important prepositions as he speaks to his disciples in John uh, chapter 14, verse 17. And those two prepositions, uh, two prepositions are with and in. He dwells with you and he will be in you. See, here's the thing. First of all, the Holy Spirit is with everybody. He's with, you know, he's with the, the, the most vile sinner. He's with the murderer on death row. He's with, you know, the most godly person that you can think of and everyone in between. The Holy Spirit is with everybody. And in the capacity of being with everybody in that role, his job is to draw you to the Father, to, 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 to call you to himself. And, and so, you know, we see in Revelation chapter 2, the Holy Spirit operating in this capacity. It says, you know, there he's, he's bidding everyone to come. It says, the, the Spirit and the church say, come. And this is what we do. We as a church, we say, come to Jesus Christ, who died for you. You, you need desperately to, to, to trust the Lord. The Holy Spirit moving and working on your heart, saying, you need to surrender to the Lord. And this is the capacity that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, is with everybody in the world today. But the second preposition that Jesus uses is saying that He dwells with you, and, and the secondly, He will be in you. Now, what happens then for us is that when we come to a saving faith in Christ, when we come to the place where we recognize, I need a Savior, and I call out and I profess with my mouth, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I profess with my mouth that God raised Him from the dead. I say that I believe this. What happens then is the Holy Spirit comes into my heart to take residence in my life. In that capacity, I'm a new creation. And the Holy Spirit now given to us, giving us the capacity to trust God and to obey God and to serve God and to know Him better. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Paul told the Romans in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Again, Paul told the Ephesians, hey, the Holy Spirit in us serves as a guarantee and an inheritance. Here's what he said uh, in Ephesians 1.14. He says, the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. And he did this so that we would praise and glorify him. And, and the word guarantee that Paul uses, it literally means down payment. It's used only in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that as you experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, well, then what that is for you, it's, it, it's equipping you to be emboldened in your faith. To be able to say, well, there's the evidence that I'm in Christ, that I'm, that I'm you know, that I'm one of his own. Jesus said having the power of the Holy Spirit is so important. Well, he told his disciples, look, don't leave Jerusalem until, you, until you're empowered, endued with power from on high. I mean, these disciples, they spent three and a half years, they got their master's degree, you might say. You know, Emmanuel University, three and a half years, Jesus Christ in the flesh, teaching them day in and day out. If anybody, I mean, they're the 12 most most prepared men for ministry in the history of mankind. And they weren't ready when they graduated. Jesus said, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. And I would say to you, if they needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do you and I need the power of the Holy Spirit? Jesus said it is that important. And here's what Jesus said in John's Gospel, John 16. He said that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, 
that he will guide us into all truth, that he'll speak into our hearts the very words of God, that he'll tell us of things to come, that he'll glorify Jesus Christ. And all of this is our guarantee to be able to, to, to encourage us, hey, listen, you belong to God, and he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. And you have God's Holy Spirit in your heart. I'll give you proof of that. Those of you that have surrendered to Christ, have you ever had a time when you feel totally convicted in your sin? Where you just, you feel bad. You're like, oh gosh, I, I did that. And, and, and man, I feel unworthy. I feel ashamed about what I've done. Hey, listen, be encouraged. That's an evidence that the Holy Spirit lives in you. He's the one, that's where that conviction comes from. When you feel that way, if you, were, if you were absolutely did not have God's Holy Spirit in you, and if you had actually absolutely rejected the Lord and He had removed His Spirit from you, your conscience would be seared. You wouldn't care about that. But the fact that you do care about that, the fact that that does bother you, maybe some of you coming here today, and you've got something within your life where you're just, oh man, I, uh, I feel so badly about that. Take heart, that's the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. That reminds you, you belong to God. And you've grieved His heart, and He's letting you know about it. Now, don't, don't misunderstand the, 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 the conviction of the Holy Spirit with the condemnation of the devil. Because the devil condemns. The Lord doesn't condemn. But the devil does. He'll show up and tell you what a loser you are and that you're a blow it and you ought to, well, give up and just forget about it and God's given up on you. That's a voice of the devil. With the lo- voice of the Lord, sometimes it's a, it's a voice of conviction. Hey, you're where you ought not to be. You're doing what you ought not to do. Come back. You ever had a time where, you know, maybe you've gone to church or you go to growth group and there's some section of scripture and you're like, I don't get it. You're like, what is this, you know? And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shows up and this big light bulb goes off and you're like, I get it. I understand what this is. That's the Holy Spirit in your life. That's God's proof to you, that evidence that, hey, look, you're my child and I'm going to lead you into all truth. Or maybe you've had a time where you're in a situation and you're like, you know, dealing with something. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, some scripture will come to your heart. Some scripture come to your mind. You're like, I didn't even know, I didn't even know that scripture. Or I can't believe I remembered that scripture. Or where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from the Holy Spirit. He's speaking into your heart. Jesus said he would. Again, to be, just be encouraged. Or maybe you have a time when you get some sort of sense or warning, you know, your spidey sense just starts tingling. You're like, eh, something, something not right there, you know? And you pay attention to that, and all of a sudden you come to realize, this is God's Holy Spirit. He's speaking to me. What's he doing? He's telling you of things to come. Jesus said that he would do that. See, paraphrasing the prophet Isaiah, here's what Paul told the Corinthians. He said, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But the fantastic thing is that when you and I have the Holy Spirit within us, then what happens is that he will reveal us to the, those things to us. It, you know, in my flesh, my eye, you know, couldn't see, my ear couldn't hear, my heart couldn't comprehend. But through God and the working of his Holy Spirit, he, get, he allows us to hear things, to see things, to comprehend things that we never could. Again, just this incredible encouragement. The Holy Spirit being our guarantee, assuring us that our faith is real and that our inheritance is secure. And so if you're in Jesus Christ, if you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, this means that, that man, hey, he'll never take his Holy Spirit from you. It's a done deal. You don't have to worry like Saul. He's not going to take his Holy Spirit from you. But if you're not in Christ today, 
This means that the Holy Spirit is with you, but that He's not in you, and there's no guarantee that He's going to remain with you. If you, if, you, if you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. See, and here's the scary part about that, is that like Saul, the Lord might be saying to you, repent, turn, turn, turn away from the direction you're going. Don't harden your heart. And, 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 you, know, and you know, Saul, he, it's not like Saul would have chosen consciously, I want God to take his Holy Spirit from me. Here's what's going on in Saul's life. Saul is just more like, you're such a killjoy, God. You know, why do you got to always be bugging me, man? And he said that so many times that finally God said, fine, I'll take my Holy Spirit away. No more bugging, Saul. And if you're, if you're not in a saving faith in Christ today, and maybe you've had the attitude where it's like, get off my back, God, quit bugging me. Look, the worst thing that can happen to you is, is God might give you what you wanted. And at some point, take his Spirit away. Listen, that's... The Bible calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I'll talk to people from time to time that's like, uh, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin that I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm like, no, you haven't. Well, how do you know? Because you care about it. Because you're concerned about it. You know, if you didn't care about it, because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, really the best explanation of that is that you deny the Lord. You just, you just, you, you just resist Him. God can't forgive. The only sin he, can, he cannot forgive is the sin that is unconfessed. And at some point, he just take his Holy Spirit away. Now, at this point, we read here in verse 14 that when God took his Holy Spirit away from Saul, that he sent a distressing spirit which troubled Saul. And that word distressing in the Hebrew, it, it means bad or evil. And, and, and that, you know, sometimes will, will, will trouble us because the, the, the logical question that should come to your mind here is, wait, God's good, He's holy, He's righteous, there's no sin in Him whatsoever. How can God send something bad or evil? That's an excellent question. I'm glad you asked it. See, here's the thing. There are two ways that God sends things into our life. He sends things actively, and he sends things passively. Here's an example of God actively sending something uh, into our life. Uh, 1 John 4.10 tells us, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, what happens here, this is a time when God actively sends something directly into our life from His hand and from His will. God actively demonstrates His love for us by sending Jesus Christ. That's an example of God actively sending something. But another way that God sends something is passively sending something. And I'll illustrate this with a story. My my dog Bentley, you've heard me talk about Bentley before. Bentley is notorious for running away. You know, the first time I ever took him off a leash at Halama Beach, he was like, he was gone, man. And it, you know, I had to run after him and chase him. And I'm like, you just lost your privilege to be off the leash. And in the house, you know, if you leave the front door open and, and you, you don't keep him inside, he will take off. Bentley's lost his privilege. He doesn't get to go in the front yard. He can go in the backyard. Now, we had some guests over several years ago, and they came over for, you know, for one evening that are at our house, and we let them in. And in the course of the evening, one of them decided they were going to go out to their car to get something. Well, they went out, and they left the front door open. 
and they got whatever it is out of their car, and then they came back in, they shut the door. Well, you know what happened. Bentley got out while they had the front door open. None of us saw it. They come back in. Now we're just continuing, and, and all of a sudden, you know, pretty, you know, several hours, we're like, where's Bentley? He was gone for hours, man. I'm like, oh, for sure, Coyote's going to get him, you know, kind of thing. And we found him. We got him back. I'm like, you stupid dog, right? Now, it's like, I'm not that stupid. I got out for a few hours, you know. Now, did these people, our guests who left the door open, did they, did they send Bentley away? Well, the answer is yes and no. No, they didn't, they didn't actively send Bentley away, but passively they sent him away by leaving the door open. And see, this is exactly what happens here to, to Saul's life in the sense that, listen, when God removed his Holy Spirit, he left the door open and this, the devil was more than happy to come in through that door that, that God passively sent the enemy through. You see what I'm saying? And so what happens here is that this is the danger that we face when we resist God to the point to where he's like, fine, I'm going to take the Holy Spirit away. And we leave the door open to the enemy. And Some of you, listen, some of you are here today and you have not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. And here's how you can know. You answer this question in your heart and in your mind. The question is, how do you know you're going to heaven? And if the answer to that question in your heart is anything other than, I've trusted in Jesus Christ on, and His work in the cross. I believe that He's the Son of God. I believe that He died on the cross for my sins in my place. I believe that He rose again on the third day conquering sin and death. I'm trusting in Him and in Him alone. If that's your answer, praise God. But if your answer is, well, you know, because I haven't killed anybody. Or if your answer is, man, I hope someday that my good works outweigh my bad works or whatever it is, then, and, you know, and if you can't answer the question, hey, where, do you know where you're going to spend eternity if you get hit by a bus on the way home today? If you don't know for sure where you're going to spend eternity, then you need to deal with the Holy Spirit who's working on your heart, who's saying, soften your heart, man. Turn, repent, surrender. Yield your life to me. Give up already. Say, Lord, come in. Fix me. Change me. Listen, and the Holy Spirit would say right now, there's some of you that you're hesitant to pray that prayer because you, in your heart of hearts, there's stuff you don't want to give up. You're like, I don't want to say that prayer because if I say that prayer, then that means I can't party anymore. If I say that prayer, that means, you know, that I, I can't have, you know, sex with, with, with gals anymore or whatever it is. And the Lord would say, listen, my spirit's not going to dwell forever. I'm going I'm I'm to beg you, I'm going to beg you, I'm going to beg you, turn to me, come to me, surrender to me. But at some point, if you harden your heart, I'm going to take my spirit away. And it's all done here, man. Everybody out of the pool. And so that's the danger we face when we leave the door open to the enemy. Now, you'll remember that I said that God will... Never take His Holy Spirit from you, right? You heard me say that. If you're in Christ, He will never take His Holy Spirit from you. That's absolutely the truth, but here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit's influence upon us can be dissipated. I've got a verse. Ephesians 5, 18. 
says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And that phrase, be filled, it, in the Greek, it, it literally, it, it's written in the active present tense, which means to, to, to say it in the active present tense would be, be being filled. That's the idea. You need to, on an ongoing basis, be filled. Now, Paul metaphorically, he contrasts this with alcohol. He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And, and the idea here is that, well, how do you come under the influence of alcohol? Anybody. You drink, right? And you continue to drink, right? That's the implication. If I continue to drink then I'm going to become under the influence of alcohol. And what Paul <laughs> says in a correlation, he says, look, it's the same way with the Spirit. That if you want to be influenced by the Spirit, then you need to be partaking and, and filling with the Spirit on an, on an active, present basis. It needs to be ongoing. Now, don't misunderstand. You know, it's not like there's levels of your salvation. When you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, He comes to live in your heart. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you, the Bible says. The Holy Spirit's there to stay. But you can dissipate the Spirit's influence in your life by failing to continue to partake of the Lord and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul was talking about in Colossians chapter 3. He talks about, you know, there's things that you need to put off and there's things that you need to put on. And, and, the, and this is the idea that, that we do need to, on, a, on an ongoing basis, be filled with the Spirit. Now, if, if, you, if you don't do that, if you fail to be filled with the Holy Spirit, again, the Spirit's not going to leave you, but you're not going to be fully under His influence either. Now, I want you to consider this in light of our text here. Because where it appears in our text, what happens is that Saul is being troubled by a distressing spirit who has possessed him. And Christians cannot be possessed, but we can be oppressed. And what happens is, is that it is possible when a Christian is not being filled on a regular, ongoing basis with the Spirit, well, then that can be put us in that place where, man, now I can be oppressed and I can begin to, to yield. I, I, I have been living in such a way. Well, okay, think about this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, don't, don't, be, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it goes on to talk about how I'm to, to present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is a reasonable service. And so what, that, what those two verses mean, hey, don't let the world press you into its mold. How do I do that? I, I present my body to the Lord as a living sacrifice. That word present means to set near. I set my life near to God. See, a lot of Christians, they like to live their lives this way. They're like, well, how much can I drink and still be a Christian? How much can, can, I, how much can I go partying with my friends and still be a Christian? How far can I go with my girlfriend and still be a Christian? See, a lot of Christians live like that. And here's what I would submit. This idea of, of being filled with the Spirit, it's the attitude that, that, that doesn't say, hey, how close to the edge can I get? Rather, it's the attitude that says, how close to God can I get? It's been said, it's not how much of the Spirit you have, but how much of, the, how much of you the Spirit has. 
right? And, and so, so this is the idea of drawing near to God. Now, how can we be being filled? How can we be filled with the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis? Great question, simple answer. You ask. You ask. Jesus said this in Luke's Gospel. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And here's what I want you to see, that as we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, the natural result is that we will worship God. And, and when I talk about worshiping, I'm not talking about just, hey, what we do here in, you know, in leading up to the message, we're going to sing praise. That's part of it. But worship is a lifestyle. Worship is your entire life. Worship is, is, is how we live our life to the Lord. This is why we have our giving as part of our worship service. Because it's an act of worship. Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor you with the money that you've given to me. I'm going to honor you with my life. I'm going to honor you by singing and by praising you. And this is what Paul said to the Ephesians. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled, be being filled with the Spirit. And then he goes on to say this. This is, this is what being filled with the Spirit looks like. This is the natural outflow is that you'll worship. He says, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And Paul goes on to to say in the next verses that when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, not only are we going to worship the Lord in that way, but we're going to worship Him with thankful hearts. We're going to worship Him with submitted lives. We see the same truth reflected with the disciples on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. What happens? They're waiting on the Lord. The Lord pours out his promised spirit upon them. They begin to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and how do we know that the natural result is that they worship? It's by the testimony of the people who see it. What do they say about the whole thing? Here's what they say. They say, we hear them declaring the wonderful works of God. They're worshiping God. Why do I point that out? Well, back in 1 Samuel, what we see is this is exactly what Saul's servants are going for. This is exactly what they're trying to move Saul towards. Verse 15, it says, And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit uh, from God is upon you, and you shall be well. And so Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who, who can play well and bring him to me. And then one of his servants answered, and he said, Look, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, uh, who, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, uh, and the Lord is with him, and you kind of get the sense there that this servant, even before he asked Saul, "Hey, you know, you you, you probably need somebody, you know, a worship leader kind of thing." He kind of, he probably had already seen David. He probably already had David in mind, such that when Saul said, "Hey, that's a great idea, go find somebody," you know, the guy went out in the hallway, had a cup of coffee or something. He's come back, "Oh, I found someone for you. Here's the guy. He's awesome." You know. And verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse, David's uh, father, and he said, send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat. And he sent them by his son David to Saul. Hey, you're going to see the king, you can't come empty-handed. Bring him something there. So David came to Saul. 
And he stood before him. By the way, there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot here in the sense that what was David doing when he was called, to, called up to this higher position? He was just out tending the sheep, man. And there are those that are, have high ambitions in ministry. Listen, just, just be faithful to do what God's called you to do. The Bible says a man's gift makes room for him. Brings him before kings, you know. And so, so here, here is David just faithfully doing that which God's called him to, and now he's called up. And so David came, verse uh, 21, to Saul and stood before him, and he, Saul, loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and he would play it with his hand. And then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So they say, hey, surely a distressing spirit's upon you, bro. Listen, uh, let us get a skillful player on the harp to minister to you. Here's what's going on. What they're responding to is that, man, they're responding to the lack of the Holy Spirit in Saul's life, right? And, and so what, what's happened well, his life is now has a, a glaring absence of one lived in worship to God. A glaring absence. What does this look like? Well, we get a sense in Galatians chapter 5 because it typifies for us there what a life lived apart from God's Spirit looks like where Paul would say, look, here's what life looks like in the Spirit and then he would say, here's what life looks like in the flesh. And he talks about, man, a life lived in the flesh, void and absent of the Holy Spirit. It's typified by sexual sin, by idolatry and envy, anger, wrath, malice, strife, hate, drunkenness, deception. Sounds like a lovely person to hang out with, doesn't it? Listen, this is, this is where Saul's at. The Spirit's been taken away, and now Saul's just an angry, vile man, and his servants go, Dude, you, 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 need some of the, you need some of the Holy Spirit back in your life. And so what they're doing, really, is they're organizing a worship service for Saul. That's what they're doing. In other words, they're saying, hey, let's find somebody who can make him comfortable. Saul, we need to find somebody that'll, that'll, that'll make Saul comfortable so that he doesn't, he's not angry, wrath, malice, whatever. And they got it all backwards, guys. Because you can't impose this from the outside. That's what I want you to see. See, the, 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 what happens, we can come to church, and if you come with the right heart, man, then God can do an incredible work. That, that, that the, these, these, the symptoms that we might come with, anger, wrath, malice, whatever it is, man, if we come with the right heart, the psalmist said this, the Lord is near to those, listen, who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. And see, if I come to the Lord in that way, well, then what will happen is he will pour his Holy Spirit out, and worship will be the natural byproduct. It will flow from my life. But what these servants are saying is, look, let's get somebody else who has the Holy Spirit, and let's bring him into the mix so that you can pick up on that and you can get in the flow with that moving work of the Holy Spirit. See, Saul's problem is that he wants relief without repentance. Saul's problem is that he wants blessing without breaking. And people still do this today. 
Today, you'll have people who come to church, they're seeking relief from a guilty conscience. They, they want to, you know, come to church to get a sense of a closeness to God. And they come in to the assembly of the church, into, into the gathering together of God's people, where God's Holy Spirit is and where the Spirit of God is moving. And what will happen is they'll pick up on that. They'll get a sense of that. There's a sense of relief from that. There's a sense of, of, of you know, God's presence from that. But they're lacking it in their own life. And so what happens is when they come without true repentance, man, they, 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 they wonder why their relief is temporary. They wonder why, oh, you know, it, it was wonderful while I was there, but it just didn't last, man. It just didn't last. Here's why. It doesn't last because the close intimacy that you experienced was lived vicariously through people around you. I had a buddy I worked with at the fire station, and I had been encouraging him, man, why don't you come to church, dude? And, and he finally, he came. And, and the guy, it was miserable. But man, he would come to church on Sunday, and when he would come to church, he just had, he smiled from ear to ear. He just had this, this like peace and joy kind of thing, and it was, it was great. But every Sunday I'd say, dude, are you... Are you ready to give your life to the Lord? Are you ready to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? He'd be like, no, not yet. No, not yet. And he had all kinds of stuff going on in his mind. He would tell me later on that, you know, it was, it was all these thoughts. It was the thoughts about what he was going to have to give up. It was the thoughts about, well, I don't know if I, if I say it, if I can actually have the follow-through to do it. It was all this stuff. And so I'd say, man, are you ready? He'd say no, and he'd leave. And he'd wonder why he felt so good for that hour and a half on a Sunday, but for the rest of the week, he felt horrible. He was miserable. Until finally one day he comes to me. He's like, dude, i got to have what you've got. I go, what do I got? He's like, you just, you have joy. You have peace. You're happy. He goes, I, I don't have any of those things. And I said, man, what you need is Jesus Christ. You need to surrender to him. Because you're coming to church and you're, you're picking up on everybody else's faith and the moving work of the Spirit, but you don't have him yourself. And you need Jesus. And he knelt down and he prayed that prayer and he received Jesus Christ and that joy and that peace. Hey, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he drank deeply. He saw the Lord is good. And now it went beyond the hour and a half on a Sunday. It went beyond just this sort of temporary thing. Listen, when you're in sin, the solution is not to relieve your soul. It's to restore your soul. And the only way that you can restore your soul is found in the Spirit of God through repentance. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Does your soul need to be restored today? 